0: We are Tom Baker, and you are listening to Law and Gospel on this Wednesday, August the 26th in the year of our Lord 2020, and we've been taking a look at thesis number nine of CFW Walther's Law and Gospel. These are a series of lectures he gave to seminarians on Friday nights, uh, beginning, what date? Wow. In 1884, December the 12th, or September the 12th, 1884, and went for, boy, a long time, 25 lectures. But he had a lot more evening lectures, and so we're going on the basis of the evening lectures. Uh, Tonight, or today, I should say, we're going to take a look at the 19th evening lecture. Thesis nine is very interesting. One quarter of the material, and the book is over 500 pages long. Not all of it are the theses, but a lot of it is. One quarter of the material is just on thesis number nine, where he says, Pastors are not rightly distinguishing law and gospel in the word of God if you point sinners who have been struck down and terrified by the law toward their own prayers and struggles with God and tell them they have to work their way into a state of grace. The emphasis in this evening lecture is the rest of Thesis 9. That is, do not tell them to keep on praying and struggling until they would feel that God has received them into grace, rather point them toward the word and the sacraments. Now, if you've been listening at all to our Rumination Thursday with Wes Reimnitz, for some weeks we've been talking about kitchen nightmares, I'm sorry, worship nightmares. I got the idea from watching on YouTube kitchen nightmares about a chef who comes into failing restaurants and shows the five or six six things that need to be solved for the restaurant to be successful. So we're doing worship nightmares, and these are nightmares that God has when he hears worship services with horrible hymns, bad liturgy, Terrible Sermons, Inappropriate Sacraments of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Tomorrow we're going to be taking a look at Discipline. But I do enjoy watching YouTube, and one of my favorite items to look at are crime stories, a lot of them by very good actors. The two that I like watching a lot, it's called The Return of Sherlock Holmes, because in one of the last elements of Sherlock Holmes, it appeared that he died falling into falls after fighting with his enemy. But about two, three years later, he returns to his good friend, Dr. Watson, and they continue Their Wonderful Mystery and Solving Murders, Sherlock Holmes. It is considered that he is one of the best persons at deductive reasoning. The other person I really like watching, and you you can listen to this. You just go to YouTube and type in P-O-I-R-O-T, Parole. This is another amazing detective story. He's a Belgian, and he's a tremendous actor. I've I've seen him in some other films. You can't even recognize him. He's so different from his character he does in Parole. But that also, you you kind of have a murder. He's called in to help solve it. The police are really happy with him all the time. And when he comes in to solve the murder... At the end of the program, he brings all the people into a room that are involved and points out how any one of them could have done the murder. And then he points out the true murderer. And it's really quite fascinating to see his reasoning style. Now, why am I mentioning these two, Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot? I mention them because I think C.F.W. Walther is one of the best deductive reasoners of our day. Now, I know this is in the 1800s. He was the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but what he does, he recognizes there are two doctrines in the Bible, law and gospel, and he examines it carefully and points out how different they are. Both of them are God's doctrine, but they have totally different purposes. Whereas every other religion in the world outside of Christianity looks to the law as a means of saving oneself, the Bible teaches that the real purpose of the law is to demonstrate that you are unable to save yourself. And therefore, when you hear the law, boy, you can get angry and you can become fearful because you recognize, as we said in the liturgy last Sunday, there is nothing we can do to escape the conclusion of the law. Namely, we deserve nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. Then comes the gospel. And the gospel also are words from the Bible, but they have as their purpose to comfort those who are afraid of hearing the law and are fearing God. And that comfort always touches on the life sacrifices, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, he has talked about this for about seven evenings. Today, we're looking at the last evening where he talks about the ninth thesis about trying to make sure you're saved by maybe inviting Christ into your heart or praying or struggling, etc. So he begins this evening lecture talking about the so called pietists. Now, C.F.W. Walther himself was kind of a pietist. Pietism comes out, and it was also 18th century, 17th century. The Christians were kind of fed up with rationalism. And in their sermons, boy, they were being told that the Bible doesn't really mean what it says. You have to get behind the words to find out the true meaning. And so you had a number of scholars, particularly in Europe, like Karl Barth or Rudolf Bultmann, And they were making it clear that what the Bible says wasn't really reality. And we had to get behind that. Well, the pietists were fed up with that. And so they began to have sermons dealing with the Christian life today. Unfortunately, that Christian life often talked about proper crop rotation, That's what sermons were about, these kinds of things, namely how we live as Christians. And there was very little about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In fact, we uh, shared last week uh, an email from one of our listeners who was listening to another radio station where an individual was given a daily devotion and it hardly ever involved Jesus except maybe a word or two in the closing prayer. And she wrote to this individual saying, you need to understand that we need to hear about the work of Jesus, not about our works. Now, the pietists in Walther's day were really different than the Lutherans. Uh, the pietists were some of the names Spener, Franca and Rombach. They held that anyone unable to state the exact day and hour when he was converted and entered into grace was not a true Christian. And you hear that from other people. I often will ask somebody, when did you become a Christian? And they will say, well, I invited Christ into my heart on July the 12th, uh, 1978. They'll have a date. Because I just came across, and it was sent to me, the four ways to be saved. And guess what the fourth way is? Once you read the Bible learn about Jesus, then you need to invite him into your heart. Well, that's ridiculous. No unbeliever will ever invite Christ into their heart. And so the focus is on what the person is to do rather than what Christ has done for us. Now, what is conversion? Walther defines defines the conversion as a transfer from the realm of the devil to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, it's not that some people don't know when that occurred, but a lot of people don't. They, They don't realize that if you ever get to a point where you want to invite Christ into your heart, that means he's already there that means you're already saved and that faith had been given to you and you love Jesus so much you want him in your heart. Well, guess what? He's already there. Now, infants, that's a good example. When we baptize infants, as Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon tells us to do the promises to you and to your even little children, that is the time when I was transferred from the realm of the devil to the kingdom of Jesus Christ when I was only a few days old. Walter makes a point that a person is either spiritually dead or spiritually alive. In other words, a person is either converted or they are not, and there is nothing in between. However, even in the Bible, there are occasions where people could actually name the time when they were converted by God and obtained grace. For example, Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, remember they ran from God and tried to hide From him in a bush where God already was. But they heard the promise that through the seed of Eve would come the Messiah. And it's very clear in chapter 4, verse 1 of Genesis, that they believed that promise, thinking that Cain was the promised Messiah. Now they were wrong on that, but they weren't wrong about being saved. Then you have David, who after his sin with Bathsheba, was met by the prophet Nathan. And guess what? He came to repentance at what had happened at that time. And the prophet told him, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. And Die eternally, that's second Samuel 12:13. and we all know about Saul, for instance, on the road to Damascus. Obviously, when he began the trip, he was not a believer, but by the time he reached Damascus, blinded by the brilliant light, he'll tell you that, yes, he became a believer. And then you have the Pentecost Sermon of Peter, where 3,000 souls listened to that sermon and were converted and were baptized. They, They could point back to that date of their salvation. Then we have the conversion of the jailer at Philippi. He was supposed to be taking care of the soldiers And when he woke up, boy, all the prison doors were open and the shackles were off. He thought they had escaped. He was about to kill himself. But no, he did not. Because Paul told him, no, we are all here. So one can say occasionally, on that particular day and at that hour, I was converted and brought out of death into life. But there are many others that have been converted in the Bible, but we have no such record as to when they were converted. Now, why do the pietists believe that unless a Christian knows the exact day and hour of his conversion, he cannot be a Christian? Walter explains that the pietists imagine that people must suddenly experience heavenly joy and hear an inner voice, and that's how they become a child of God. Now, once you've invented this notion of how conversion takes place, then you're forced to tell people that they have to be able to name the day and the hour when they were converted. And so this is where Walter gets into the last part of thesis nine, namely that it is wrong to try and get people to win over into a state of grace through prayer and struggling until they feel that God has pardoned them. Now, Every now and then I read something in these lectures and I put a question mark beside it because did Walter really mean to say it this way? And it comes about in this thesis, this section, that Walter says this, according to God's word, those who have never felt the testimony of the Spirit, that they are a child of God, are spiritually dead. Now, when I read that, that sounded like a contradiction to his thesis, that feelings therefore become the assurance of our salvation. And so he also says this, where I put another question mark. The apostle, in Romans 5, 1, justified by faith we have peace with God, he must be speaking of a peace that is sensed, felt, and experienced. And if you have not got that feeling, then you may not be truly saved. Now, how does he get around when I considered him to be contradicting himself? Because he indicates when David was converted through Nathan, he had an inward experience of the joy of the forgiveness of sins. And he exclaimed in a psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquity and heals all our diseases. You see, C.F.W. Walter makes a point that he has experienced the terror that God sends to a sinner whom he wants to rescue. For example, when we say that no one must base his own salvation and state of grace on feelings, this does not mean that a person can be a good Christian without having experienced anything regarding religious matters. He begins to quote Martin Luther, And there's a difference between Luther and his great disciple, Melanchthon, he says, that Luther was not a sentimentalist, which Melanchthon was to the highest degree. Melanchthon often based his joy on his feelings. But no matter what Luther's feelings were, where did his joy come from? He clung to the word of God. Now, this is really a great distinction that is being made here. Because what Luther says, once you have faith, then you can have feelings. In other words, until a person clings to the word, namely the promises of God, they will never feel assured. What the pietists and many evangelicals do is they believe that you should have this feeling before you can be assured that you are saved. And therefore, when you have a feeling wanting to have Jesus in your heart, then the way that that happens is you invite Jesus into the heart. This is really a great distinction. So the thesis is against feelings as the means by which we are saved. In other words, there's a paradox here in the heart of a Christian. And as I'm talking to Christians, I find this all the time. What's the paradox? That we fear and tremble When we hear the law, but we are still assured that we are saved. You see, in this theology, we are not to consider what we are like and what we are to do, but rather what Christ is, what Christ has done, and what Christ is still doing for us. That will lead to feelings, and those feelings are a result of our being saved. They are not prerequisites to becoming saved. Cling firmly to the Bible, Luther says, and you will feel the, tri- the crying of the Spirit in your heart. Accordingly, our spirit bears witness of the, of the Holy Spirit in a spiritual way. Where does this joy and feeling of assurance comes from? Because it is produced by the word of God. Romans eight sixteen, The spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children. Of God. And so, if you don't feel the results of the law or the gospel and the crying of the Spirit in your heart, you need to realize that you may not be a Christian. But when you feel joy at this, wow. You see, grace is never in a person's heart prior to their being converted. It's in God's heart. First, a person must believe. After that, he may feel. Feel proceeds from faith, not faith from feeling. In fact, there's a hymn, I Will Believe, though void of feeling, till before you I am kneeling. So if you're worried about not feeling grace, be proud that you are a true Christian, because only true Christians get worried about not feeling grace. Another hymn, I Cling to What My Savior Taught, and trust it whether felt or not this is a great conclusion to thesis number nine by cfw walter and helps us to understand that salvation comes through faith in the gospel word of god on tomorrow's law and gospel as indicated with Wes Reimnitz, we're going to be taking another look at a worship nightmare, and that is the lack of discipline that occurs in many churches.